0: From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, a satirical parable about partisanship and why many people hold on to their beliefs after they're proven factually wrong. We talk with Matt Johnson about his new futuristic dystopian novel, Invisible Things, and about subjects he's written about in earlier novels and essays, like being biracial and caring for his mother, who died a couple of months ago. Also, we hear from comedian Joel Kim Booster. He wrote and stars in the new rom-com Fire Island, inspired by a trip he took to the gay vacation destination with fellow comedian Bowen Yang, who also stars in the film. And podcast critic Nick Hua explores how reality TV is influencing the podcast world. My first guest, Matt Johnson, calls his new satirical novel a parable about partisanship. It's set in the future, when Earth is on the verge of destruction, and a NASA mission sets off to one of Jupiter's many moons to explore if it could be a place that humans could inhabit. What they find is an artificial ecosystem the size of an American county constructed to look like an American city. It's populated with earthlings who have been abducted, dating back to 1623, and their offspring. Life in this dome is in some ways a replica of life on earth, even with products that have brand names that anyone on earth would recognize. There's a class system in which the privileged feel like they've fulfilled the dream and everyone else is shut out. The political system is designed to favor the privileged. Comfortably sitting at the top are the descendants of the founders. They run the dominant political party. The more recently you've arrived, the lower your status. If you ask who built this town, you're told God and God's chosen. If you probe any further, you will be punished in truly mysterious ways. The novel is called Invisible Things. Matt Johnson has written several previous novels that deal with race. The main character in Loving Day is biracial, like Johnson. The novel Pym is about the only black male professor at his college who's denied tenure and decides to search for the intellectual source of racial whiteness. Among Johnson's honors are an American Book Award, the United States Artist James Baldwin Fellowship, and the John Dos Passos Prize for Literature. He is the Philip H. Knight Chair of Humanities at the University of Oregon. Matt Johnson, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's really great to have you back on our show. You um, read some great personal essays on our show uh, a few years ago, and I interviewed you when your novel, Loving Day, was published, so I'm really glad we got to talk again I'd say, how have you been? But I think that would be a very long answer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's just like handshaking. We have to come up with something new to get through the pleasantries nowadays.
0: Yeah. So before we break that down, that how have you been part, before we break that down, let's start with your new book. Do you think things on earth are changing so quickly that if you want to write a politically engaged or a social commentary kind of novel, you almost have to set it in the future because... The present is going to be the past, you know, in a couple of seconds. And things, I mean, if you just look at what happens every month, you know, politically and January 6th and the hearings and Roe v. Wade and shootings and then the overturning of the New York state law that restricted who could carry guns outside the home. You know, you look, it's just all happening so quickly.
1: Yeah, and I bet you, as you were coming up with that list, you were thinking, "There's a thousand other things." I'm not I know, I know, no, right? I was just
0: it's like the last, like,
1: yeah. few weeks. Yeah, it always feels like the last few weeks. You know, like, that's part of it. I think one of the first thing I started to notice was that satire, like, and most of most of the writing I've done has a satirical bent. Um, if if not straight up satire. And that's less intentional. It's more just kind of the way I look at the world and the language that I speak. But what I noticed quickly, you know, was satire, um, which usually is taking things to their logical extreme, to the utmost extreme, and then seeing the absurdity within them and then diffusing them because you're pulling out the larger absurdity and and hypocrisy becomes obvious and everything else. Um, That's impossible for me right now, because to my mind, we're basically living in a satire things are to their complete extreme in so many different ways to point out their absolute absurdity. And yet that's become normalized, you know? So it was very hard to twist things further along to come up with something that gives you enough distance to say, Hey, this is crazy. No, it's already crazy. So you can't do that. The other thing that's happening for me is that because things are moving at this point so quickly, um, is that I, it doesn't help for me as a writer to come up with something where i'm dealing with the specifics because the specifics are going to change so rapidly and this also has something to do with with kind of what i've been interested instead because of that is not as much the specifics on individual issues but in the larger ways that we as a society and we as individuals think about um, our world and these patterns of behavior that that reemerge and reemerge in a variety of different ways. And, you know, for me, the biggest one when I was working on this book was was mass denialism, a society-wide kind of choice to ignore certain things because they're just too big to deal with.
0: So on this uh, moon of Jupiter, in which there's a, a city that's been created, um, designed to look like an American city— And the population there is the people who have been abducted from Earth and spaceshiped to this moon. Um, The abduction started in 1623. And that is, you know, approximately, I mean, that is the period, if not the, it's not the exact year, but it's the period when enslaved Africans start arriving in Virginia. It's also the period, not the exact year, of the Mayflower landing when the pilgrims first come to Um, To America. Um, And the name of this fake city in this Jupiter moon is called New Roanoke. And of course, Roanoke is a city in, in Virginia. So explain why you chose this period of 1623 that coincides with, you know, both whiteness and blackness in America from opposite directions.
1: Yeah, the first time I jumped into the text, I really didn't want it to be America. I wanted it to be a combination of, of North America and Britain and France and all of us that were going through a very similar cultural moment, uh, uh, Trump and, and Brexit and the rise of fascism in, in France. But what I ended up finding was that I couldn't distance it enough that I could actually still deal with... The issues that we're dealing with, um, and I was hoping to get to something far more universal. But a lot of you know what I found comes out of very specific events that happened in our history that we're still dealing with the long-term effects. So once I realized that, I just started to try and look at a version of America that was not 1776 going forward, or you know, from some kind of set idea about what America is, and started trying to think about where the root of a lot of our current identity comes from. And so it it really became inescapable. The
0: 1600s is the period where you think American identity is created and American whiteness and blackness.
1: Well, I mean, you know, nobody wants to hear this. And I I don't want to say it, but we have a nation that was formed in part on a genocidal land grab and, and forced generational slavery. I mean, it's just like, we, we don't have a choice, but to acknowledge that, you know, one, it's been wild watching people re- react to the 1619 project because I've seen people go after specifics, you know, and say, well, this wasn't, you know, this isn't accurate or this isn't accurate. But really the, the real criticism that you hear behind these kind of often very petty disagreements about uh, historical events is that we can't accept this reality as being the source of our nation, that we can't have an America that's not based on our, our ideals, but based on actually, you know, how we, we formed it in the first place. And you know, because that, I just like I, I can't deal with this, you know, the world that I'm finding myself in in without acknowledging that a lot of our existing prejudices our, you know, entire identity is based on, in, in part, on the way that we formed. Even the issue of mass denialism. I'm, I, I'm scared sometimes that part of the reason that Americans are so good at pretending that what's happening is not happening is a combination of a history of doing this, of being a nation that forms on on the basis of, of the idea of freedom while also being, you know, tens of thousands of people being slaves and then also being wealthy enough to get away with it uh, for a very long time. And that's kind of what I fear we're hitting the wall about.
0: My guest is Matt Johnson. His new novel is called Invisible Things. We'll hear more of our conversation after a short break, and podcast critic Nick Hua will review three podcasts that take the approach and techniques of reality TV into the audio world. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to my interview with Matt Johnson. His new novel, satirizing America's divisive political system and class structure, is called Invisible Things. It's about a NASA mission looking to see if one of Jupiter's moons is inhabitable. What they find is an artificial ecosystem in a glass dome that's designed to look like an American city. Your previous novels have focused a lot on race. You're biracial. The Sociologist... In your new novel, and one of the crew members are of African descent, but race doesn't much directly figure into the story. But one example where it does that I want to refer to is uh, Nalini, the sociologist, gets depressed when she's on the moon colony and realizes she's basically a prisoner there. And she wonders if she should do what some 19th century West Africans did after they were kidnapped and enslaved and bound for America, which is to jump overboard rather than endure captivity. And the primary reason she doesn't act on that impulse is because she knows her own African ancestors were the ones who didn't jump overboard. What made you think
1: about that? I think about that all the time, Uh, really. There's so many times when things get really dark, whether it's on a personal or society level, that the impulse is just to give up. And I think about that when I, you know, want to give up in different ways. Like what I'm enduring is nothing compared to what my African ancestors endured coming, you know, just in the, the sail from West Africa to the States, just that part alone, and in addition to the hundred years of, of violent oppression and sexual assault and then, you know, on, on my white side and the Irish side, I mean, they came here from a place there where they're being starved to death and they managed to come out, come out of incredibly bleak circumstances and make it across the sea and, and live in poverty for a couple generations. And, um, and thank God for the GI Bill. They finally got out, but putting it in that context sometimes is sometimes the only thing I can do that forces me to put you know, my own frustrations and my own feelings of nihilism in perspective, because, you know, there's an incredible strength in that, that like people who endured the worst possible things that we can imagine. I'm sure there's worse, but what we can imagine. And were able to have enough hope because that's what it is. It's hope that tomorrow would be better. I mean, we're talking about people whose kids were enslaved from the moment they came out of the womb. Right? But they still had enough faith and hope that things could get better. And, you know, if they can do it, it seems insulting and disrespectful to their legacy if, you know, if I don't try and do that.
0: Your family has a history of escaping. Your great grandfather fled north to Chicago to escape being lynched. Your mother and aunt fled from the Midwest to. Um, Philadelphia? Yes. To escape their abusive father. Did the fact that your great-grandfather did escape lynching and your mother and aunt did escape their abusive father, did that also give you a sense of resilience? That escape was possible, that you could survive and go on to a different life?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's the the American paradox, that like— they were able to create far better lives for themselves. And they were also able to break cycles of of violence and and substance abuse. And I'm just still in awe of both of them. Um, And so, yeah, there was strength in that. I mean, I spent my life, you know, most of my earlier life watching my mother fight her way into the middle class, you know.
0: What did your mother do to fight her way into the middle class?
1: Well, um, when my parents got divorced, I was about five years old. And... My mother immediately uh, went to go get her undergraduate degree in social work and worked full time. And really about the same time this happened, she also had a complete physical collapse. We thought it was a stroke at the time, but it was the initial impact of, of having, of being diagnosed with MS, multiple sclerosis. Uh, which also like made it so she could only work so hard or this, or the symptoms would come back. And, you know, with no financial really support outside of, you know, herself and, uh, MS and no larger family. I mean, her sister was ever very supportive, but you know, the large family was not around. She was able to get an undergraduate degree. She graduated, had her graduation on a Saturday and Monday morning she was in grad school. And then she went from a series of jobs after that, that were always a little better than the last one. And it was never a question of like the exact place she was going to. It was always to a better life, you know? And I it had a massive impact on me because I just thought that's how everybody does that, that level of, of work uh, and that level of hope and that level of focus on the future was how you, you are supposed to live. And I mean, I wouldn't be here right now if that hadn't happened.
0: She died a couple of months ago. So, you know, I'm really sorry. And uh, I, 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 I know you took care of her. You moved her wherever you moved, um, you know, toward the end of her life. Um, so do you think of yourself as having given back to her what she gave you?
1: Well, she gave me life. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> like, it's about, I, I couldn't give her life. I mean, that's sort of impossible. But um, no, I mean, it's, honestly, it's just never enough. Like, I know that it's never enough, right? And I can accept that rationally but it's never enough, you know, it's so hard watching somebody you love deteriorate over, um, a slow period of time. Right. And it's, it's insanely hard seeing somebody you love and, and, and just disappear overnight. And it's just utter shock. Um, but watching them, you know, um, kind of disintegrate for, in front of you over 15 years, this was no picnic either, you know, and I tried to do everything I could, um, it's funny, we talked about last time we talked, was with Loving Day. Um, and that was really, like as somebody from Philly, getting to talk to you was, was a little bit of a big deal. It was very exciting. And uh, when the, the audio came out, like, you know, it was a big life event. And I spent the entire day uh, clearing out my mother from one studio apartment in an elder care home into another studio apartment, um, cooking her dinners for the week. Um, trying to get get her to get rid of some of her stuff, and i might, you know, I, I left, you know, after working from like seven in the morning to like seven at night, covered in sweat and dirt and exhausted, and you know, it's still my mom, so we're like, you know, arguing and laughing, and you know, emotionally it's draining. And I got in the car, and like a lot of times when I got in the car, I just started screaming, which was how I would deal, you know, because it was so emotionally exhausting. And I would just scream and curse at MS. And, you know, and then I, I turned on the car and connected my, you know, my phone and listened to the interview. And that's kind of how um, it's been. I mean, I've been very fortunate to have a really fun career, both as a writer and as a teacher. Um, but as all this has been happening, I've had this other part of my life, um, which has been about trying to keep my mother uh, upright as new things kept collapsing um, beneath her. And, you know, so I'm, I, it's really weird for me not to have that at this point. You know, it's been two months, and um, I really don't know how to deal with that because there's there's just, I spent so much of my energy in taking care of it that it's kind of, yeah, I, I, I haven't come to terms with it yet.
0: Do you feel any sense of relief that... um I don't know how to put this without sounding... But, I know, right? But 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 right. No, I know, because yeah. when you've watched somebody slowly die or, you know, just like regress over a period of years, and, you know, your mother had dementia too, so, um, you know, that figures into it also, and she had the MS. It was, I'm sure things were really rough at the end, but it's hard to, I think it's hard to allow yourself to experience or to claim the relief that you might even think you're experiencing.
1: Yeah. You know, it's weird. Cause I've thought like, like it is hard even framing the the question. Are you happy your, your parent died or what? Like, and obviously that's not what it's asking. And I knew I was supposed to feel guilty about the relief. And honestly, I didn't, it wasn't the relief because like, I was just tired. Like, you know what I mean? Like towards the end, because my mother had dementia, she would call about eight times a day. And so sometimes I'd be in class teaching and I see the phone and it's ringing and, you know, it's her. And like every, you know, I walk out of the room and it's ringing. And it was just kind of like, you know, she didn't mean to do it that way, but it was, it was like very nerve wracking, you know. Um, So there's a relief of that. But you know what? Like the relief is so quick. Honestly, in my experience, like it was like I, uh, the relief was not just, oh, I don't have to do the work anymore. The relief is I'm not going to fail in being able to handle the amount of work that's being presented to me, you know, here, you know, and that was uh, the relief was also fear. You know, it wasn't just tired. It was. This is happening. I can barely hap- barely deal with this. What happens when it gets worse? Like, am I going to be able to handle it? Can I handle it financially? Can I handle it time-wise? Or just, will I have the answers at all? But when she was gone, there was a sort of relief, like I made it to the finish line. But then the, immediately, like the loss, there was a couple of things I did not expect when she died. And one of them was that the relief was not as prominent in my head as, the person I had lost. And it wasn't just the person I had been dealing with for the last 10 years. Once she left, like the next day it felt like, the version of her in my head of this, this woman whose body had betrayed her, who was completely collapsed, whose mind had betrayed her, uh, you know, and stuck in a chair for the rest of her life and unable to think pr- her way through things or remember things. And then all of a sudden it was flashback to this woman who I grew up with. This woman before all this. And like I hadn't really talked in that in my mind to that woman in so long. And then bam, like she was like reappeared. And it's really, I never heard anybody describe it that way with, with those long-term illnesses. But, like, I missed the person who existed, but I really missed the person who was, when she was all of, of who she was, you know. And that, that was the biggest feeling and kind of shock. You we
0: were lucky in that respect because I think for a lot of people, what they remember for an extended period of time is the person who was nearing death for an extended period of time. You know, because you've been so exposed to them and it's so upsetting. And it kind of imprints on your brain. And it, it often takes a while to recapture who the person was before they went into serious decline and got sick.
1: Well, you know, one of the first things I did after she died was, you know, I was a more of a mess. I a mean, mess in general, but more of a mess at that time. Was I went back um, to home to Philly. And, uh, you know, we used to live at South Street about eighth and south. And we used to, you know, that's far on the east near the Delaware River. And we would walk sometimes, like when I was in high school, over to the art museum and then around, which is, I guess, I don't know, it's a couple miles. Um, but it was, you know, we loved the city and we loved walking around and there was always stuff to see. And, you know, that was something we would do on a Sunday. It was free, you know, and um, she never had a lot of money, but it was just also just glorious. And uh, I, so I went back and I, I, you know, I wanted to see some family members, definitely. But one of the biggest reasons was I wanted to find that person that had been there. And that really, it really brought it back to life. And It was kind of the thing, people like, well, why are you going? And I couldn't kind of put my finger on it. But um, just walking those, those pathways again um, brought a lot of that back.
0: Well, Matt, it's really just been great to talk with you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Matt Johnson's new novel is called Invisible Things. There's no denying that reality television is widely popular and culturally influential. And when it comes to podcasts, that influence is increasingly taking the form of imitation. Podcast critic Nick Hua has been thinking about the trend of podcasts trying to replicate the appeal of reality TV.
2: It's not radical to say that reality television sits at the heart of American culture these days. This doesn't bother me as much as some others. It is what it is. Personally, I'm a huge consumer of reality television, and on my loftier days, I'd even argue that Bravo's Below Deck constitutes high art. Of course, the word reality in reality television is a misnomer. Any reeler, and it would be documentary. Instead, What the genre supplies is reality as a manufactured theme park. People placed in situations designed to extract heightened emotions from everyone involved. You get conflict, drama, and some semblance of a narrative arc, however contrived. And if you're really lucky, you also get The Sublime, a funhouse window into the primordial human experience. The podcast world is abundant with shows about reality television. Most take the form of episode recaps and industry news. My favorite is Juliette Littman's Bachelor Party. Squint hard enough, though, and you'd also notice a mini-trend of podcasts trying to capitalize on reality television's popularity more directly, by emulating the genre's conceits, mechanics, and style. Among them is a podcast from earlier this year called This Is Dating, which tries to adapt the reality dating show. The series is created by Magnificent Noise, the studio behind the star psychotherapist Esther Perel's array of popular therapy session podcasts, which are themselves inspired by reality television. This Is Dating, part social guide and part controlled experiment, is constructed around virtual blind dates that are arranged, produced, and mediated by producers and a dating coach. Hey. Hello. Hey, how's it going? (laughs) It is going. Uh, Nice to meet you, Eric.
3: Nice to meet you, too.
2: (laughs) Uh.
0: All right. If it's been a while since you've been on a first date, I'll let you in on something. A lot of them are just like this. Really awkward. They're completely focused on the small talk. They're sitting in the shallow end of the conversational pool. There's questions like, what do you do? Where do you live? How many siblings do you have? People never really get to know each other. They're just exchanging information. So... To kind of push them a little deeper into the pool, we've decided to play fairy godmothers to their date.
2: More recently, a new podcast called Being Trans presents a more explicit relationship with its reality TV inspirations. This fly-on-the-wall series follows a group of trans individuals as they go about their lives in Los Angeles. Reality TV fans will recognize the use of genre tropes, confessionals, concocted social situations, bouncy background music and many listeners will respond well to the show's ambitions of normalizing the trans experience. But being trans ultimately feels like a rough draft, even as it yields occasional moments of real human drama. Like this one, where Cy Clark Chan, a non-binary legal assistant, discovers on tape that their partner thinks of himself as straight. First of all, how do you, like, how do you identify?
0: I'm straight.
4: Um... Yeah. Oh, so sad. No, no,
5: it's fine. Okay, okay. When Robert answered Jeff's question that he identifies as a straight guy, you know, honestly it put me into a bit of a spin because fundamentally,
2: regardless of how either of us identify, our relationship is a queer relationship. It was pretty awkward because that's not a conversation that Robert and I have really had. There's a curious gap between this emerging cohort of reality podcasts and the television phenomenon they're inspired by. When we talk about reality television, we're usually not referring to what it looks like, but what it feels like. A show marked by contrivance, and more often than not, the insinuation of mess. We turn to reality not for reality, but for a fantastical reality. That spirit isn't quite present in these podcasts, where the focus is still very much on realism. As a result, it's hard not to come away with the feeling that these are sweet-natured documentaries trying to pass themselves off as something sexier. This month, we'll see the release of Welcome to Provincetown, a podcast that follows Mitra Kaboli, a documentarian, as she shadows a group of individuals over a summer in Provincetown, the seaside haven for the queer community. Before I'd even arrived in P-Town, I'd heard of Kaia. People were saying that she was going to be the it girl of the summer. I remember thinking, what does it mean to be the it girl?
0: One girl?
5: She's gorgeous. (laughs) Um, She just puts a lot of effort in, and you can see it. People can see it. People like her. She has the charisma.
1: Well, Kai is a phenomenon that, you know, blasted into town a couple of years ago. And, you know, she appears at just the right moment.
3: Have you seen her perform on Tuesday nights at the club? I met when she first got here. She was good, but she's really perfected her craft in her voice.
2: After living and working in town for nearly a decade, this summer, she's getting her break. It's a naturalistic, contemplative work. One that has more in common with Verite-style audio series like Radio Diaries than, say, MTV's Real World. However, that doesn't stop Welcome to Provincetown's distributor from marketing the show as reality television-inspired. It's hard not to be a little frustrated at the tactic clearly meant to attract fans of reality television who wouldn't ordinarily consider trying out a podcast. But these shows aren't likely served well by the in association. Let documentaries be documentaries. There's nothing wrong with that. And when the time finally comes for podcasting to actually get its own Real Housewives, let the mess be mess.
0: Nick Hoa is podcast critic for New York Magazine and Vulture. He reviewed the podcast's This Is Dating being trans, and welcome to Provincetown. Coming up, we'll hear from comic Joel Kim Booster. He's the writer and star of the new film Fire Island, a rom-com about a group of gay friends vacationing on Fire Island. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Our next guest, Joel Kim Booster, wrote the new gay rom-com Fire Island and stars in it with Bowen Yang. It's about a group of gay friends vacationing on Fire Island. Booster is also a comic and has a new stand-up special called Psychosexual. He's written for shows like Big Mouth, Billy on the Street, and the other two. He spoke with guest interviewer Sam Sanders, the former host of the NPR show It's Been a Minute. Sam is currently working on a new weekly culture podcast for Vulture and New York Magazine, which is set to debut next month. Here's Sam.
3: Joke and Booster is having a great year. His movie Fire Island was released on Hulu this month to rave reviews. The film is a very gay and very Asian retelling of Pride and Prejudice. This week is sacred. We're going to Fire Island. It's like gay Disney World. And Joel is featured in a new Apple TV Plus comedy out later this month with Maya Rudolph. It's called Loot.
1: I can't believe how long that meeting was. What was that, like three hours?
5: It's 9.50 a.m.
1: Really? And we have to be
4: here until 6.30?
3: We don't have to be, though. We don't have to do anything.
4: That's why I'm so confused right now.
3: There's more. Joel Kim Booster is also out with a new comedy special on Netflix. It's called Psychosexual, and it's full of what Joel does best, biting, sarcastic, hilarious takes on subject matter that could be extremely depressing in other hands.
4: I don't believe uh, that overpopulation is the, the major issue at play here. I do think that if you want to have kids, you should have kids. Um, but I do think that <laughs> if you are having kids, knowing everything we know about the way the world is going, it is sort of like when you're at a party that you know is dying down. <laughs> you know? And then you get a text from a friend and they're like, Hey, should I still come to the party? <laughs> And you're like, yeah, yeah, jump in that Uber, girl. I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure there will be ice still at the party by the time you get here. Um, When what you should be doing is calling them immediately, being like, don't come here. Somebody has put on a podcast.
3: So a lot of Joel Kim Booster's work is about identity, what it's like to be gay, what it's like to be Asian while also being gay what it's like to be Asian and gay while growing up with white evangelical adoptive parents. In most of his work, behind every stare and every line, you can see Joel, or his characters, working through all of that, looking around, trying to figure out just where and how they fit in. Joel Kim Booster, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much for having me. You're having this great year, You've got Fire Island. You've got the Netflix comedy special. You've got the Apple TV Plus show. Are you allowing yourself to believe now in 2022 that you've, quote, made it? No. (laughs) Uh,
5: In some respects, like, listen, I, you know, I've made it in the sense that I am able to support myself as a writer performer. And that, you know, is something of a feat of itself um, and I'm very proud of that. But I don't know, I, I guess I'm lucky in some senses that it's all happening in the span of one month, um, Pride Month. I, I, th- I think the metric for me of actually making it next time will be if they let me release something that's not in June during Pride. Um, that'll be when I really know that I've, I've hit uh, an upper echelon.
3: Can we talk about your movie Fire Island? Give our listeners a 30 second description of this film for those who haven't seen it yet.
5: Yeah, Fire Island is a modern-day retelling of Pride and Prejudice set on Fire Island, um, and it is about the experience of vacationing with a chosen family and what it's like to fall in love uh, in a very short amount of time on vacation and class and race and body politics.
3: Uh, Yeah, yeah. And now I guess we need a 45-second description of what exactly Fire Island is for those who've never been, and I myself have never been.
5: Yeah, Fire Island is a a small little barrier island connected to Long Island um, and it is now for close to a century been a sort of safe haven for queer people to go and escape, um, sort of heterosexual society for a, a little bit. Uh, I think a, one misconception about Fire Island is that it's completely gay. In fact, Fire Island is made up of several sort of neighborhoods or, uh, hamlets. And, um, only two of them are gay, Cherry Grove and the Pines, and that's where the movie is set. Um, and there are no roads, uh, there are no cars, no cell service. There are, are huge parties and uh, debauchery that can happen, and you can also go and make dinner and play board games and read by the pool if you want.
3: When did you first go to Fire Island, what, and like, what was it like? Um, we,
5: I, So I went in 2016 with Bowen for the very first time. Yeah, Bon-Yay, Bowen-Yay, um, who co-stars with me in the movie and co-stars with me in my life as one of my, my best friends, and he and I had the opportunity to go and we were a little apprehensive because another important thing to know about Fire Island is it does sort of have a reputation for being um, not only a safe haven for for queer people but specifically a very s- a specific subset of queer people which is uh, cis, white, muscly gay guys uh, who are usually rich and usually in their own sort of exclusive, exclusive. bubble. Um, and yeah. um, you know can be sometimes a little unwelcoming to people who don't fit into those categories in some way and um, so we were a little nervous to go but we ended up you know having sort of the summer of our lives out there for the first time and, and learning very quickly that Fire Island is an, a place for everybody as long as you and it is very much about who you go with and who you choose to surround yourself with on the island um, And I know that like a lot of people when this movie was coming out were sort of like, why would you want to celebrate a place that can be so toxic? And for me, it's always been like, it's one of the most visually arresting beautiful places I've ever been. And if you see, if we avoid that island because there is this element of toxic gay guy culture, then we've lost something really special, you know? And, And I'm really heartened that like, in the last couple of years i've gone you are starting to see a lot more people of color going a lot more queer gender nonconforming trans people going you know people of all body types you know we're sort of storming the island and we're taking it back in a certain way and saying like this is for everybody this is for everyone in our community and you know we're not going to let just one subsection of the of our community
3: have it I feel like for listeners to get a really full or more full understanding of who you are, Joel Kim Booster, uh, we've got to talk about where you came from and what that's about. And I think first to get into that, what was happening for you before stand-up comedy? You know, stand-up is how you made a name for yourself, but you began wanting to be an actor and a writer. Like, when did young Joel know that he wanted that?
5: I think I knew pretty early on. I think as as soon as I knew it was... A job it was the only thing I have ever wanted to do was to tell stories you know I was um, a really sort of I, I loved attention as a child as I do as an adult and um, I think like I really craved the spotlight from a really young age and I and I a lot of it for me as a child was figuring out the ways in which you could get that kind of attention from storytelling, and so I would write my short stories and make my family sit down and listen to them. And I would, you know, be in as many you know community theater productions as possible. And I, I just, um, quite frankly, have never really been good at anything else. Um, so it was always sort of the only option for me. Um, and um, yeah, that I, it, it, its so weird to try and think back on a time when I wasn't interested in doing something along the lines of what I'm doing right now.
3: Was there a certain moment where you saw a certain thing on TV or in a movie and said I got to do that?
5: Um yeah, I mean Margaret Cho was a huge sort of eye-opening experience for me as a child watching All American Girl her her sitcom on ABC was um really massive for me. I it was the first time I had seen an Asian American on screen that wasn't a sidekick that wasn't doing martial arts not that there's anything wrong with that but i it, it was like something that i just couldn't connect with and suddenly there was this woman on screen who you know had a family that looked like me and as a a, a transracial adoptee that was hugely impactful for me as well it was seeing an Asian American family on screen for the first time. And I just remember sitting really like inches away from the TV, watching that show um, week after week and, and really for the first time understanding what was possible for me.
3: You know, it it must've been really interesting for someone like you as a kid to watch it because you were this young Asian American boy, but your family wasn't Asian. Your family was white. You were adopted as a child by Midwestern, white evangelicals? What was the life that young Joel was living with that family when he was seeing Margaret Cho on screen?
5: Listen, I had a really great childhood, but it was, there's a lot of dysphoria that like, uh, dysmorphia and, and strangeness that comes from, you know, not looking like your family. And, there's a strangeness that comes with that, that you cannot necessarily shake and that I I don't know that I have ever completely shaken for myself. I, I, I just, um, you know, I grew up in a town of mostly white people, in a family of all white people, and as a byproduct of that, I think there's a lot of work that I've had to do to feel comfortable in any space, quite frankly. White spaces, Asian spaces, you know, um, part of the experience, I think, that I share with a lot of transracial adoptees is this feeling of discomfort no matter where you are and not quite feeling like you belong. You know, I'm so lucky that I'm queer as well because I think finding my chosen family and and surrounding myself with people, some who, who look like me and some who don't, but who understand me on, you know, that really deep spiritual level has been really uh, vital to me and my growth as a person.
3: You end up at a certain point in high school, leaving that home and leaving your family because you're gay and they find out and they're not cool with it, right? What happens then?
5: Yeah. So it was my senior year of high school. I moved out, couch hopped, lived in my car a little bit and uh, eventually ended up living with a family of a girl that I had one class with that, you know, I barely knew, but sort of knew my situation and and told me that I could sleep at her house for one night. And that one night turned into the rest of the year. And um, that family, um, you know, became uh, my second family, you know. And sort of ironically enough, her dad was the Methodist pastor in town. And really, you know, because coming from an evangelical background, I was really messed up about, you know, it's hard to untangle yourself from that sort of fundamentalism in religion. And so a huge part of me thought I was going to hell for a large part of my teenage years you know I, I, I was out and I was happy being out but I had this understanding that like eventually I would be going to hell and um, her dad as this very progressive Methodist pastor in town really let me know that I was okay and you know I, I don't necessarily I consider myself fairly agnostic now but at the time it was so powerful for me to hear a you know a person with authority in the church say to me you are okay and God loves you.
3: You know, going through that experience, I could see someone like you saying, "Uh, well, let's not talk about that. I've moved on. I'm free now. But for a good portion of your career, it informed your comedy. And I'm thinking back to the first time you got on Conan, which was six years ago this month, I think, June 2016. At the top of that set, you are talking about Growing up in the Midwest, adopted and gay and Asian. So why don't we hear the beginning of that first set that you did on Conan back in 2016? My name,
4: it's very strange. It does not match my face. Joel Kim Booster. Why? You know, Joel up top there, that seems pretty Jewish. Doesn't make any sense at all. Kim in the middle, that seems closer. Uh, And then Booster right there at the end. Well, that's just a word. (laughs) It's not a name at all. What's happening there? And the reason I have this very goofy name is, yes, I was adopted by a nice white midwestern couple in the mid eighties like many korean babies were um, <laughs> korea in the mid eighties if you were around you probably remember it was the only country that would fly a baby to the u.s and you didn't have to go and pick it up so it was uh it was very much the grubhub of babies back then uh it was delivered by a very grumpy man on a bike uh <laughs> Forgot my mom's Pepsi, wouldn't go back for it. (laughs) It was a disaster. Uh, So as you can imagine, it was a little weird growing up in the Midwest with this face and that family. I mean, I literally knew I was gay before I knew I was Asian.
3: Uh... (laughs) One, wow, what a statement. But two, the level of, I don't know, bravery, self-awareness to say that on a stage in front of people. What do you really mean when you say that I fully knew I was gay before I knew I was Asian?
5: Well, because, you know, uh, another sort of layer on top of all of this um, is that I was homeschooled from the time I was, you know, a child until I was a junior in high school. And so we led a pretty sheltered life. You know, it was really just me and my family as a unit. Um, we didn't really, I didn't really interact with many people outside of my family. And I remember, at, you know, being four or five years old and telling my brother and my sister, I like boys, you know, and they thought it was a hilarious joke and didn't really think much of it at the time. Um, and it wasn't until I was probably seven or eight that I, you know, was at a family reunion in Alabama, with my mom's side of the family who are mostly from the South. And it was really at that moment where I was looking at this huge composite photo of our entire family standing together that I realized, oh my God, like I am different. Uh, I look different than all of these people. I look different from everyone in my family. And that was really when I had sort of, uh, an actual sort of uh, real understanding of my racial differences from my family was, was at that moment. And this was, you know, years after I knew I liked boys. So, um, it, it is both of, it, it's a funny joke, but it is the truth.
3: Is there ever a version of your life in which you make a movie about that part of your life? The Korean child adopted by Midwestern white evangelical parents who ends up fleeing home senior year of high school when he is gay would that be a movie that you ever write?
5: Yeah, you know it's, it's obviously something that I am, I've thought about a lot, but it's funny you know, even though so much of that happened when I was a teenager it doesn't feel like that story has quite completed yet you know i i i feel like i still don't have enough distance from it to understand what story i would be telling you know i could tell an autobiographical story of the of just the simple facts of what happened you know but i don't know in sort of a macro sense like what is that what am i trying to say and until i know that i don't it doesn't feel like i know how the story ends yet and maybe i'm i might never understand that but until I have the distance from it to know how, this, how the story ends and how it, it sort of closes the loop, I, I don't think I'm ready to tell that story in a fictionalized way.
3: Joel, I've asked you all the questions I have for you, and I just want to thank you for your time and say that I'm so excited for your big year. Thank you for all you do.
5: Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you. I really, really appreciate that I do.
0: Joel Kim Booster's new Netflix comedy special is called Psychosexual. He wrote and stars in the new film Fire Island, which is streaming on Hulu, and co-stars in the new Apple TV Plus series Loot. He spoke with guest interviewer Sam Sanders. Sam's new weekly culture podcast for Vulture and New York Magazine debuts next month. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Bordenado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, Susan Yakundi, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross.